Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to all those who are joining us on site and those who are joining us online as well. We are continuing our series this week that we've been spending the last couple of weeks and heading towards Easter. And we are walking through a section of the Gospel of Mark where we learn that Jesus has resolutely set out towards Jerusalem for one last time and towards the events of Easter. And along the way on that journey, he's teaching his disciples some very important lessons about the way of discipleship. And you may have noticed this, and I mentioned it the first week, is that each of these lessons follows a bit of a pattern. You see, if you look through the way that it's organized in the Gospel of Mark, you'll find that Jesus predicts what's going to happen when they arrive in Jerusalem, his death and his resurrection. The disciples fail to understand what that all means to him and to them. And then Jesus uses that opportunity to teach them an important lesson about the way. But all of that starts with one other thing. It all begins with a question. In each of these three lessons we've been walking through the last few weeks, it always begins with a question. Now, questions are a standard part of of life for all of us. We know it's a standard part of our lives. Did you know that a three-year-old will ask anywhere around 200 questions a day? The moms and dads probably don't disagree with that at all. About 200 questions a day. But then when we become an adult, it drops down to about 20 questions a day. There's this amazing loss of curiosity about the world, or assuming we perhaps know the world. But regardless of how many questions you may ask in a day, there's certain types of questions that we ask. Some of them, for example, are are rather kind of casual and simple questions. You know, for example, I might ask Andrew, how you doing? Good, doing good. Fantastic. I might look out here, Don, did you enjoy the weather this weekend? Great weather. Fantastic. Simple ones. Other times we might ask questions that are intended to solicit information. Colin, what do you have planned after church today? A nap after the congregational meeting, though, right? Right. Not during the sermon, not during the meeting, but after the meeting. Yes, you have a nap planned. Exactly. And Nadine, are we planning to bring something to potluck next Sunday? Yes, it'll be a surprise what that is. So some questions can be casual, some can solicit information, but there's actually another type of question that sometimes we will ask. And it's a bit more of a a difficult question to discern at times, but there's this thing called rhetorical questions. And a rhetorical question is not intended to solicit an answer as much as it's about soliciting thinking behind the motive of the answer. A rhetorical question. We find that God actually asks a lot of rhetorical questions in the Bible. For example, if you go back to the very beginning, the book of Genesis, in in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned, what do we find out? We're told that they sinned, and then they saw that they were naked, and they had shame, and they ran, and they hid themselves. And then God comes walking in the garden saying, Adam, Eve, where are you? Did God really not know where they were? Did God really not know what all had taken place? Was he really trying to solicit an answer of, we're over here? Or was it a rhetorical question where he was trying to ask them a question that would stimulate thinking as to why are you where you happen to be in this particular moment? Rhetorical questions. Questions like these are extremely powerful. They're very powerful, especially in the hands of a teacher or in the hands of a coach like Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Because in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark, we learned in the first week that Jesus, while they are on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus asked the disciples the question, who do people say that I am? He probably had an idea of who people were saying who it was. Chapter 9, Jesus asked them, 
what were you arguing about on the way? Well, Jesus already knew what they were arguing about. That's why he asked the question. It's a rhetorical question. And then today in chapter 10, we find that Jesus asks another question of his disciples while they're on their way to Jerusalem. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? That's an ordinary question, seemingly at least. An ordinary question. But it has this purpose that goes so much deeper into, into a prompting thought behind the answer. And this question is intended to draw out a person's view of who they see Jesus to be. And also to pierce the motives and the ambitions of a heart. And so we start today picking up the story in Mark chapter 10. If you want to follow along in a pew Bible, you can find this on page 822 of your pew Bible. If you want to uh, use the sermon notes through the pew portal to scan that code in front of you, and the sermon notes include the scripture passages there as well. And as you're flipping to that, this is a part of the journey where Jesus and his disciples are getting rather close to Jerusalem now. And the multitude is following behind them as they walk. And as they continue on their way to Jerusalem, for the final time, two brothers, two of Jesus' disciples, two brothers, James and John, come running up ahead to catch up to where Jesus is because they have a request of him. And in verse 35, we find out what the request is. They, they run up to Jesus and they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Okay, who in their right mind is ever just going to go, all right, shoot. If you're a parent, a teacher, if you're a manager of a workplace, you already know better than to get baited by such a statement. But while Jesus is not ready to blindly agree with whatever they have to ask, he does choose to engage them. He engages them by asking them a question. In verse 36, what do you want me to do for you, he says. Now they're thinking that Jesus is not really aware of their scheme yet, and so James and John jump right into explaining what they want. And we pick this up in verse 37, where they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left when you come into glory. Jesus replied, you don't really know what you're asking of me. Can you... Drink the cup that I drink? Can, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And, and they boldly declare, yes, we can, Jesus. So Jesus said to them, well, you will drink the cup that I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right and at my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. The power of this question is successful in its intended purpose. See, it not only reveals the nature of the request that they raced ahead to offer, but it also gets to the heart of who they see Jesus to be. And it gets to the heart of their nature of their ambitions. You see, while the request may seem over the top as we read it here today, fully aware of all the events that would take place and, and, and perhaps even fully aware of how the story ends, this actually wouldn't be that outrageous of a request given the situation at the particular time. See, consider, for example, that along with Peter, James and John were Jesus' three closest friends. And if Jesus is going to come into his kingdom, you would think that his closest friends would receive some sort of special privilege. At the same time, being the closest to Jesus, they had experienced unique events that nobody else had experienced. And so why wouldn't they kind of float to the top if they had been selected amongst the others in the past? So only they were present at the transfiguration. 
Only they were present when Jairus' daughter was raised. And in a few days, only they would be present in the garden when Jesus would grab a few close brothers to come and pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And besides, these are educated men who, men who grew up being educated in the Jewish customs, and they knew the prophecy of Daniel 7 that said when the Messiah comes, he will be a ruler who will be given dominion over the whole world. And just a day earlier, Jesus has said to them that the 12 disciples would sit on 12 thrones and that they would judge the 12 disciples. So they knew something big was coming. They knew that they were the closest to Jesus in their minds. And so they're simply asking to sit as crown princes in the kingdom that they believe is about to appear. And they're partly correct. The Messiah was about to usher in a new age where Jesus would be exalted as king in glory over all. But what they missed is that it would not be achieved the way that the world seeks power. It would not be achieved the way that the world seeks glory and greatness. As we learned in the previous two weeks, the road they were walking was paved with rejection. It was paved with suffering, and it would eventually end with loss, the loss of Jesus' life. In each of these previous lessons, Jesus had told them this. He had predicted what was going to happen. But remember the pattern. He would predict it, and they wouldn't understand he predicted, and they would fail in understanding. And he did it again here. Immediately before they make this request in verse 35, if you go back to verse 33, it says, Guys, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him. And then three days later, he'll rise again. Verse 34. And then verse 35, Jesus, we want you to do whatever. Do whatever we say. Can we sit next to you in your glory? See, this prediction is what Jesus was talking about when he says, Will you drink the cup that I drink? Do you even understand the cup that I'm about to drink? Will you share in the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? See, the, the, the cup is this Old Testament metaphor talking of God's wrath being poured out. The baptism is this reference to what he, what he talks about here in verse 33 and 34, this, this cup of wrath being poured out and being baptized into the calamity that sin causes. He says, are you guys really willing to go all the way? And in keeping with their bold character, and in keeping the boldness of the request, absolutely, they say. But we know the rest of the story, perhaps, and Jesus did as well, that before it was over, all of them would abandon him. But it is true that in the days to come, they would experience it. Because in the days to follow Easter, in the days to follow after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when they would come to understand, they would come to see, they would also come to participate in his rejection and the suffering and the loss. Because the disciples and flowing down through the church aid to those of us who gather here today would take up the mantle of spreading the good news about Jesus Christ. And the disciples would even give their very lives for doing that. But they did not know that yet. For now, they receive a less than agreeable response from Jesus, which is probably a little disheartening for them to hear that. But it even got a little more tense when they realized that the disciples' conversation with Jesus had actually been overheard by the rest of the disciples. And they are ticked <laughs> that they would ask such a thing. Now, at first, we might 
you know, want to give credit to the other disciples for their outrage that such a request would be asked of Jesus. How could those brothers be so insensitive asking Jesus such a thing if he had just predicted his death? Imagine the nerve of them. Just because they were called first, thinking that they could have the first thrones. I wish I could tell you something like that was taking place here, but nothing quite so noble was actually going through the minds of the other disciples. Recall our lesson from last week. Last week, they were all, they were all arguing over who was the greatest. This was simply round two of that same argument, this time with a more exclusive group, a more exclusive group of, of James and John who happened to beat the others to the punch to make this request. You see, the, the issue at hand here is not that they were ambitious. Uh, the problem that we find in this story is not the fact that James and John were ambitious. You, you see, in Jesus' response, and even throughout the Bible, you will never find Jesus or the Bible condemning ambition. That's not really the issue. You see, if you have an opportunity to be ambitious, push forward. Drive to find achievement. Drive to find honor and success. But, but where ambition goes off the rails is when you take a good thing like ambition and apply the wrong motive to it. If you think about it, this is really the nature of practically every sin that we have. You can take a good thing like food, but a little too much of it, the wrong motive, it turns into gluttony. You can take a wonderful thing like Sabbath rest and, and get a little too much of it, and it turns into laziness. You can take a beautiful thing like intimacy and turn it into lust. You can take something necessary like, like medications and turn it into a dependency and a means of escaping your problems. Some people will take ambition as their drug. This need for success, this need to be first, this, this need to achieve more than the others, and it leads to a sinful action. You see, the difference between worldly ambition and godly ambition really comes down to the object of ambition. And the Bible tells us that the object of our ambition is this. The object of our ambition is to be accepted by Jesus Christ and to bring him honors, honor. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, we have this as our ambition, to be pleasing to him, to be pleasing to Jesus. But now according to the world, the object of our ambition is to be ourselves. The biggest house, the fastest car, the biggest paycheck. We all know the adage, whoever dies with the most toys wins. It speaks to this sort of worldly ambition. It's also what we could refer to as selfish ambition. Bringing honor to the self over top of the other. I came across a story this week where I think it actually encapsulates this. I've got to imagine, are there any, any fans of the Beatles with us? I, I know we're in church, but you can admit that you listen to the Beatles, right? There's worse things. There we go. Hands go up because I give you permission. Right? So, some Beatles fans. There's lots of Beatles fans around. One of the biggest groups of all time. And for over 40 years, they always had their albums written that said songs by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Songs written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. But then Paul did a solo project in the early 2000s called Back in the USA Live 2002. And he changed it to songs written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Fans were outraged that he would do this. And it added a whole bunch of extra fuel to an ongoing feud with Lennon's widow, Oko Ono. Right to this huge issue. And so they went and they asked a publicist 
for, um, for Paul, what this is all about. And the publicist said, this isn't meant to be a divisive thing. I'm not sure what the big deal is. It's, it's not like Paul is asking for John's name to be taken off the songs. He just doesn't think John should be first anymore. Now, it's not like James and John were asking for the others to be excluded. They just didn't think they should be first. But that's what selfish ambition looks like. That's what it looks like. So Jesus sits them down, and he decides to teach them the way of ambition in the kingdom of God. And we see his response begin in verse 42. So Jesus called them together, and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They lord it over them, and their, and their high officials, they, they exercise this authority over others. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become greatest among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to, serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, as Jesus explains this, he draws their attention first and foremost to the authority that they have over top of them, which, which are the, the rulers of the Gentiles. This would be in reference to uh, the Romans who were occupying the land at the time. And he reminds them what that's like. He reminds them what that type of leadership is like. How, how they, how they kind of lord it over others. They, they throw their weight around in order to dominate and to, and to direct and control people. And even at times, the Roman officials would recruit ambitious Jewish people to come and join them. And they would, and they would set these people up as regional leaders or as tax collectors. And a quick read of the Gospels, you know, it, it's, it's kind of hard to miss that these, these Jewish people who are ambitiously raised up to become regional leaders and tax collectors, they weren't real popular with the people. Because they were seen as traitors who, who were supporting the occupying forces. And they simply were doing it for personal financial gain and power. Selfish ambition, we could say. And with selfish ambition, here's what ends up tending to happen. You've probably experienced this, maybe in your own life or, or, or in somebody around you is that even when you get a small dose of power, it can change a person. It can change a person where you, you start to see others as beneath yourself or, or you start to feel like you're beneath another person because they've received a little bit of power. When they get a promotion at work or, or, or when they have their 15 minutes of fame, suddenly they're less available to you. They, they're a little less friendly. It's, it's, it, it's hard to relate to them again because it seems like they have a different you know, list of criteria for how they evaluate relationships and, and appearances and things like this. You know, there was research done into this by, by neuroscientists at uh, Sir Wilfrid Laurier University here in Canada. And they found that that power fundamentally changes the brain. It was quite an interesting study where they would, they would create these artificial environments to see how the effects of even a little bit of power, a little bit of seniority, a little bit of being over another change, not just the way a person viewed something, but even the wiring of a person's brain. You see, all of us have this natural tendency to be wired in our brains to do something called mirroring each other. And it's, it's a thing that our brains do to help us get into each other's heads to be able to empathize with others. And you've probably experienced this before where, you know, they would, they would see somebody, you would, you would see somebody squeeze a ball and you may, even, you may even 
have your hand twitch a little bit to go along with them. But when the scientists measured the brain impulses, the neurons that were firing, when they watched somebody squeeze the ball, they could see the same neurons firing in the other person's brain, even though their hand hadn't moved. And there was this connection that was happening. Perhaps you've seen this if you're watching somebody play soccer and your leg kind of twitches a little bit when they, when they kick the ball. Or if you're watching a video game and they, they got to jump and you just kind of do this right along with me, you're not holding anything. You look like a like a fool doing it, but it, it just naturally kind of happens. And it's, it's a way that we do this physically, but even emotionally we do this, and it helps us to empathize with people. It helps us to enter into their situation with them a little bit, to empathize with them. But here's what the scientists found. They found that when people feel a, even a slight increase in power, superiority, being over another, not only did people stop reacting physically, but even the neurons quit firing in the same fashion. And the conclusion they came to in this article is that when power goes to your head, it shuts down your heart. Isn't that something? When power goes to your head, it shuts down your heart. And it starts to build a divide between. Now Jesus uses this example of of the Roman occupiers, the rulers of the Gentiles over them. He uses this example because they've been on the receiving end of this Roman power. And he now contrasts that with Jesus' definition, an example of what ambition is to be focused upon. You see, rather than a drive for power and prestige and a drive towards status over others, instead of having those things over others, he says we are to be a servant of others. Now, some of us may cringe at that. Because the message of the world is different. The message of the world is, no, you need to climb that ladder. You need to get ahead And in our society, as in the society of the disciples at this time, servanthood would be equated with weakness. You're not ambitious enough. If you're seen as weak, you're not ambitious enough is how the world would see it. And and there is some truth to this. Then in the kingdom of God, the focus and the object, the objective of ambition has been reversed from the way that the world sees it. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, throughout his teachings, he has been completely consistent about this. If you read the Gospels with an eye for it. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount where he says, Blessed are who? Blessed, happy, and content are the poor, the meek, the persecuted. Last week we learned in a teaching in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus said, The first shall be last. Meaning the first shall not exalt themselves but should be in service to others and allow others and God to be those who exalt them. And then now he says here in Mark chapter 10 that the greatest shall be a servant, even a slave to others. Now for many people, especially those who are, have a driven nature within them, those who tend to be leaders, and, and, and folks, we need leaders within the church. This will seem unappealing, but don't miss the power of the statement. Don't miss the power of the statement because that's just an incomplete view of it. You see, the life of the follower of Jesus Christ, their life is to be characterized by by humility and by service, absolutely. But that does not mean that we are called to resign ourselves to last place. It is not a call to resign ourselves to be the doormat of the world. No, Jesus does not say in the kingdom of God there is no top place. He says in this that in the kingdom of God, this is the way. This is the way of ambition. And so if you feel called to advancement at work or advancement at school, go for it. 
Go for it, but not at the expense of relationship to others. If you have been blessed with incredible wealth and opportunity, that's fantastic. But see it as a responsibility, not a privilege. If you have been gifted with the ability to do incredible ministry and you believe that you deserve or need a bigger platform than you currently have, praise God that that opportunity exists. Step out in faith, but do it with humility. Do not lose humility in the midst of it. And if you are content with where you find yourself right now, whatever that role may be, that can be beautiful as well, as long as you still maintain an ambition to know and grow in God's love for you and for others. This is the way of ambition, to be pleasing to God and to do so in the service of others. And there's no better example of this than Jesus himself, who did not just teach us the way of the cross. He, he didn't just teach us the way of greatness. He doesn't just teach us the way of ambition. No, he walked it. He walked it as well. He is the epitome of what it looks like to have ambition for servanthood that leads to exaltation. In verse 45, he sums it up by saying this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. This, this sacrificial death that he was on his way to, that he was trying to explain to his followers, where he would pay the price for the sins of all people, where he would be ransomed for all who believe in him. And the Apostle Paul, uh, a, few, a few decades later, would beautifully pick up on this, on, on these sorts of themes, in one of the most beloved passages probably in the New Testament, found in Philippians chapter 2, where he had this beautiful portrayal of Jesus Christ who, as it says, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death upon a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of who? To the glory of the Father. Amen. This is the example of ambition that is pleasing to God and the service of others. And it has the power to soften a person's heart. So they don't only care about themselves, but they seek to serve and advance others. It has the power to drive ambitions, not so that they are, are, are seeking greater things for themselves, but so that they can make God the object of the ambition. It's a beautiful thing. But did you ever notice that if you look at the verses just before that, this is not just a proclamation of Jesus' example. It's put forth as a model for us to follow. Because it says this in verse 3. It says, do nothing, speaking to the followers of Christ, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or out of vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. As Jesus exemplified in his ministry and in his life. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So as we consider this, if Jesus were to ask you, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? 
How would you answer that question? Remember, a question of like this is not just simply meant to solicit an answer, but it's to make you think a little deeper. A little deeper into what, not only what is your answer, but why is that your answer? And as you consider how you would answer that question, it can sometimes feel like, like a mirror being held up in front of yourself, where that can be uncomfortable some days. You got a bad hair day or something, you see yourself in a mirror, you don't really like looking at it. But it can also be enjoyable when your heart is in good shape and being shaped by God and is set upon being pleasing to him. How do you answer that question? What do you want me to do for you? Reveals something. It reveals your view of Jesus in some ways. And the answer will also reveal the object of your ambition in life. If the object of your ambition is selfish and worldly, you may look at it and say, well, maybe, maybe the way I perceive Jesus is a genie in a bottle, where, where I come forward and say, Jesus, I want you to do whatever I ask, and rub the bottle three times, and the object of your ambition is achieved. But however you answer this question, remember this. God loves you. And God had the ambition to make the first move to show you that he loves you. Consider Romans 5.8, where it says, God demonstrated his love for us in this. God made the first move in this. That while we were still sinners, while we were still seeking our own way, while we were still separated from God, while we were still perhaps even hostile to God, while we were still the object of our own ambitions, while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us to bring honor to God in service to us, to pay the price for our sins, to make a way that we could have that eternal relationship with God. And if he carried our sins to the cross, that means that he drank the cup of wrath on our behalf. If he was baptized into the calamity of the sins that our sins afforded, he did that on behalf of us. And as we take this into consideration, how do we answer the question, what do you want me to do for you? The only answer left is, Jesus, I want you to come into my life. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. Jesus, I want you to be the Savior of my life. And then ask Jesus, Lord, what do you want me to do for you? How can I say thank you to you? How can I bring glory to you? How can I show your love to others? This is the way of ambition. And as we have the opportunity now to remember that sacrifice that Jesus made. That first move, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We, we have an opportunity now to respond by coming to the communion table. I just want to give you a moment of reflection and preparation for that, you know, in part to make sure you have your elements. If you're at home, you can grab those now. If you're on site and you didn't receive the cup when you came in, you can just put your hand up and an usher will bring them to you. But also take a moment of preparation to reflect upon that question that, that Jesus asked his followers. What do you want me to do for you? Maybe your answer today is, is, Jesus, I want you to forgive me of my sins. I've never asked for that before, but today I acknowledge my need of you. And I ask you to forgive my sins. I believe that your sacrifice upon the cross was sufficient. And I want your forgiveness. Perhaps your answer is more along the lines of, Jesus, I, I want you to restore me a relationship in my life, a, a passion for life. 
Whatever needs to be restored, we can cry out to Christ for that. Jesus, I, I, I want your peace. I, I want your comfort. Jesus, I, I, I want you to guide me and, and give me the power to serve others in your name, in your glory. Let's take a moment to reflect upon that question. As followers of Jesus Christ, this is the way of ambition, to be pleasing to God and to serve others.